Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow Welcome to Starship Sofa Part of the District of Wonders network Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders Come and find yours I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm moving, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 675. I'm your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. And just want to make a big shout out and big hope everyone is okay after the UK suffered some storms last week. And just unreal that some of the, the sights that I've seen like around my village and went over for a little cottage stay in Windermere in the Lake District. And the devastation is just like hundreds and hundreds of year old trees just ripped out, lying on cars, walls lying on cars. Ah, so I just hope everyone is okay. Let us get straight into today's show. The main fiction is Satin Slingshot by David Hill. This story was first published in Far Orbit in March 2014. And we have also got our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, Amy's coming along later on. So, David Wesley Hale is an award-winning fiction writer with more than 40 stories published internationally. In 1997, he received the Golden Bridge Award at the International Conference on Science Fiction in Beijing. And in 1999, he, placed, he was placed second in the Writers of the Future contest. Mr Hill studied under Joseph Heller and Jack Caddy at the City University of New York. Now this story is narrated by Anthony Bounton. Anthony Bounton is a voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret lair, volcano lair, in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. Previously recorded for Farfetch Fables, Tears to Terrify and The Sea. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... 
Saturn Slingshot by David Wesley Hill. Serendipity was an old ship. For more than two centuries she had sailed the same slow course from the inner planets to the Jovian moons and out toward the Kuiper Belt, that clot of comets lying between Neptune and Pluto. There, after unloading cargo and picking up freight bound sunward, her crew would adjust Serendipity's sail, align the spinning prismatic circle of Kapton at an angle to the distant solar orb, and begin the decade-long spiral back toward the heart of the system. Serendipity had made eleven such round-trip voyages. Like most of the crew, Captain D'Angelo Jones had been born aboard her and had grown up within her slowly rotating tangle of corridors, cargo pods, and superstructure. Except for a brief period off wiving while Serendipity tacked above the Mars ecliptic to avoid the asteroid belt, Jones had spent his life inside the ancient vessel, and he knew her every sound, her every twitch and tremble, as well as he knew his own physical body. That long bass thrum was the tension of the vast sail against its rigging. The sad creaking pulsing in and out of audibility, that came from winches making microscopic alterations to the sail's trim, keeping serendipity bearing straight, propelled by sunlight across the ocean of night. His cousin Letitia, Letty, was the lookout on watch. Her short black hair fanned in a curly halo around her dark features in the microgravity as her fingers flickered over the flat screen before her, scouring space around serendipity with optical scanners and radar. "'Everything's clean for fifteen hundred clicks,' she said. "'LaShawn?' D'Angelo asked. His niece's second husband was at the weapons console. Fore and aft cannons loaded with buckshot, D'Angelo. Lasers ready.' Beatrice had the helm. Unlike the others, Jones's wife was fair, with a complexion the color of milk and a ruff of hair as golden as corn. Her eyes were pale, pale blue. Beatrice had been born on Phobos, which had been settled by Europeans. Orbital insertion in six minutes, two seconds, she said. Hold her steady. They were skimming seventeen hundred kilometers above the rings of Saturn, a vast, uneasy ocean that stretched below them into infinity. Rivers of color, glinting silver and gold and crimson and umber, writhed into view and disappeared astern. Saturn was off the starboard bow. Although it was still a hundred thousand kilometers distant, the immense brown and yellow hemisphere subtended a quarter of the sky. Serendipity would approach Saturn within eighteen thousand clicks, entering a shallow orbit meant to fling her away into space like a stone from a slingshot. Only by leveraging such a gravitational assist from the gas giant could they hope to reach the Kuiper belt. The efficiency of a solar sail was proportional to its proximity to the sun. Whole lot of debris ahead, D'Angelo. Letty studied her console. Pebbles. A dozen pieces a meter in diameter. Range 1,280 clicks, LeSean said. Locked on and standing by. Clear a path, Jones ordered. The rings of Saturn were composed of rock, dirt, and ice, trillions upon trillions of pieces, varying in size from particles of smoke to floating mountains. Most fell toward the low end of this spectrum. The rings surrounded the planet in a belt almost 300,000 kilometers in diameter, yet they had an average thickness of a single kilometer, and sometimes their width could be measured in hundreds of meters. Occasionally, however, plumes of debris would be knocked out of the rings, either by collision with other particles or simply through some peculiarity of gravitational interaction. 
This created navigational hazards for ships approaching the planet. LeSean triggered his weapons. Beams of coherent light lanced out. The debris in their path exploded into mist. All clear, he said. Beatrice, Jones asked. Orbital insertion in four minutes, thirty seconds. Steady as she goes. Jones gazed warily through the clear dome of the bridge, out at the kilometers of sail, brilliant against the jet backdrop of space. Rock, dirt, and ice weren't the only perils facing the old ship during its traverse of Saturn. The rings were inhabited by tribes of piratical aborigines, the descendants of castaways, outcasts, and criminals, who enjoyed nothing better than hijacking passing solar sails, robbing them of cargo, and enslaving the passengers and crew. These vermin lived in caves that they hollowed out in larger pieces of ring material. They mined iron, copper, lead, and other metals from the infinite expanse of detritus, and refined the ore by hand, casting it into the machinery necessary to survive in vacuum. They breathed oxygen extracted from water ice through electrolysis, which also provided hydrogen to fuel their rockets. Since the sun at this distance was too feeble to support plant growth, they polished acres of ice to reflective smoothness, aligned these mirrors in huge fields, and concentrated the sunlight to an intensity sufficient for hydroculture. Even so, protein was scarce in the rings. That was another reason the scum took captives. Unfortunately, despite their primitive level of technology, the aborigines were a real danger. Over the years, Serendipity had been attacked seven times during her passages of Saturn. More debris to starboard, Letty announced. Clear a path. Two minutes, six seconds. Hold her steady. Serendipity, like most solar sails, was a freighter. Her cargo consisted of bulk goods and durable commodities, items that weren't sufficiently valuable to warrant the exorbitant cost of shipping aboard a fusion ship, and whose worth wouldn't decrease during the long years of transportation by sail. She was carrying whiskey and bond from the Tarsus distilleries on Io, mining and manufacturing equipment, silk and wool from the Imbrium farms on Luna, and 5,000 indentured servants from the urban warrens of Valles Marineris. These were enduring the long haul to the Kuiper Belt in suspended animation, frozen to within degrees of absolute zero. They were strung out behind the ship in translucent capsules that were open to vacuum, insulating their cargo from temperature variation, but not providing much else in the way of amenities or safety. On average, 97% of such passengers survived the crossing alive and undamaged. 1% would die. 2% would suffer freezer burn of varying severity. 22 seconds to insertion. 20. Captain? The use of his title alerted Jones. What is it, Letty? 7 degrees to port. Range 940 clicks. 4 seconds... Beatrice was counting down. Three seconds. Two. One. We have insertion. His wife's hands fell away from the helm. Serendipity had made orbit. Eight hundred and twenty clicks, Letty continued. Eight hundred and ten in closing. His cousin shunted data from the optical scanners to the main display, giving them a view of a swarm of rock and ice fragments rising from the plane of the rings toward Serendipity. At this distance, the instrumentation had a resolution of twenty meters. It was impossible to decide whether the scene was innocuous or whether it hid some greater danger. Seven hundred and ninety in closing, Letty called out. 
Relative velocity at point one click per. Bring it up on infrared, Jones instructed. Letty stroked the console, switching the view from the visible spectrum. In this mode, space was dark blue. The chunks of ice and rock, scant degrees from zero Kelvin, were only slightly paler. Jones studied the image intently. Nowhere did he see a trace of green or red, yellow or orange, which would indicate living warmth and the presence of enemies. Still, he remained uneasy. Bearing? he asked. Should cross our bow by eighty-six clicks. Too close, Jones muttered. He stared at the screen and then said to LeSean, Take out everything larger than a meter. His niece's second husband nodded. Aye, aye, D'Angelo. LeSean bowed over his board. Once more, lasers lanced forth, the forward sections of the beams becoming perceptible each time they found a mark, momentarily delineated in the clouds of steam and dust generated by their impact with a swarm of debris hurtling from the rings. Again the lasers flicked out, creating a nimbus of subliming water and methane vapor, mixed with chlorine and fluorine as well as with particles of carbon, iron, and nickel. Velocity distorted the shape of the cloud into a comma kilometers long. Then this cloud itself detonated, shooting streamers of brilliant fire, bright candles of furious white light fleeing from the maelstrom, and Jones felt a sick twist of tension settle inside his chest, understanding exactly what he was looking at, knowing that it had all been a ruse and that they were under attack. The damn savages had hidden their filthy makeshift rockets in the ring material, and the sons of bitches were coming full throttle straight towards his ship. Evasive action was out of the question. Clutched by Saturn's gravity, Serendipity would be unable to maneuver until she rounded the vast planet and was flung again toward deep space and the Kuiper Belt. The savage's timing was perfect. Jones refused to allow emotion to enter his voice. Fire at will, he said. Immediately, Captain. They carried projectile weapons against just such an eventuality. The three forward cannon were loaded with rounds of buckshot. LeSean fired the guns, filling the space ahead of Serendipity with a storm of pellets capable of penetrating the ice and metal out of which the primitives built their frail ships. Unfortunately, Jones knew, it wouldn't be enough. It never was. He keyed on the intercom. Now hear this, now hear this. All hands to stations. Serendipity is under attack. Prepare to repel borders. Forty-six of the savages' tiny ships had been concealed among the rock and ice, shielded from visual and infrared detection. Three were destroyed within seconds. Four veered off on tangents at the mercy of malfunctioning control systems. The remaining thirty-nine ships continued on course despite the barrage of buckshot LeSean threw at them. At a distance of sixty kilometers their jets fired, breaking their velocity relative to serendipity. Letty pasted a close-up on the main screen, allowing a view of the lead vessel. Its fuel tanks, exhaust chamber, and attitude jets were fashioned from hand-beaten metal. The navigation and electrical systems, however, which were too complex for the savages to manufacture themselves, had been stripped from vessels they had robbed. The rest of the thing was a chunk of ice that had been crudely chiseled into shape, hollowed out, and pressurized. The airlock was a pane of ice that had been frozen to the hull to create an atmosphere seal. It shattered suddenly into a thousand shards, which fled away into space. Distant figures emerged from the ship through the portal now revealed. They fired their thrusters and burned toward serendipity. 
Fighting would soon be hand-to-hand. Jones thumbed on the intercom. Engagement in 73 seconds. Beatrice stood down from her console, went to the arms locker, and removed four epes. Projectile weapons were, of course, useless at close quarters and microgravity, since the recoil would send the shooter tumbling. She handed them out, keeping the last for herself, running the slim graphite blade through a lightning routine, the sword moving almost too quickly to see. Then she went to Jones, her breath hot against his ear and the fine pale hair on her upper lip damp from exertion. You must take care, my husband, she told him. Come back to me. Promise me that you will. Jones knew it would be useless to ask the same of her, since Beatrice, like all Martians, was both fearless and merciless, God lover. Her lips brushed his, then she pulled Jones's hood over his head and secured his faceplate before closing her own. Ten seconds to engagement, Letty counted down. Eight. Serendipity's sail was a round sheet of shimmering capton, twenty-four kilometers in diameter with a two-kilometer circular hole cut out of its center. Through this projected the main body of the ship, a complicated spindle almost three kilometers long. Joined to each other by shrouds of cable, both sail and superstructure were spinning with a period of seventy-two seconds. This rotation allowed the sail to maintain its shape without the need for supporting spars or masts, and also generated an artificial gravity of .3g within the ship itself, sufficient to prevent muscular atrophy and skeletal distortion among the crew during their lifetimes lived in space. The bridge extended a hundred meters out from the deck on a spire that was in turn seated on gimbals, an arrangement that allowed it to remain stationary while the rest of the ship spun, providing Jones with a stable vantage point. The crew, his family, each of them a relative by blood or by marriage, took up positions amidships, abaft of the sail and ten meters clear of the rotating complex of habitats and cargo containers, greenhouses, equipment sheds, hangars, and workshops that comprised the untidy bulk of serendipity. Others took a stand at the bow, guarding the main portal into the vessel. In the distance, now subtending a third of the sky, Saturn cast a yellow pall over the ship and the tiny figures defending her. Seventeen hundred kilometers away spread the strange and dangerous ocean of the rings, an insane kaleidoscope of chaotic geometry. With appalling suddenness, the savages burst through the sail. Diminished by perspective, the holes they made coming through the capton seemed no larger than pinpricks in comparison to the vast expanse of sail. But tension widened the punctures, splitting apart the edges in a visible process, the holes engorging into gashes hundreds of meters wide and hundreds of meters long. Only ripstops, seams of denser material overlaid on the capton at regular intervals, prevented the sail from cleaving asunder. Most of the invaders struck amidships directly at the crew. Many failed to bleed off their velocity, using themselves as human missiles, sometimes successfully, sometimes with suicidal results. Others hove to in a blinding flourish of personal rocketry to engage the defenders' graphite epes with their own cruder weaponry. Maces, morning stars, and pikes of beaten iron, sabers of ice, and clubs and daggers of rock. Soon, bodies were floating limply or thrashing while their fluids evaporated in the vacuum, the integrity of their suits fatally breached. Vaporizing blood cast a desperate scene in an incongruous pink glow. Smaller parties of savages struck at the bow. One group jetted for the bridge, Jones ready to sword. 
Let's have at the goddamn murdering sons of bitches, he snarled, enraged to blasphemy by what they were doing to his family and to his ship. Beatrice struck the emergency lever, which blew out the airlock, evacuating the bridge of atmosphere. She launched herself into space in a tumble that made her impossible to target as she flew at the savages, careering into them in a deadly flurry and then rebounding at an angle, the tip of her epee crimson. Jones headed toward the foremost of the approaching party, a tall figure in a black suit emblazoned with a stylized skull of iridescent orange and purple. The savage was wielding a quarterstaff of blue ice with iron spikes embedded in either end. He struck out with the weapon, but Jones deflected the blow with the pommel of his sword, slithered the epee around the staff, and ran it into his opponent's throat. Thinking that here was one god-cursed barbarian who would see no profit from this day and from the attack on serendipity. Without drawing breath, Jones leveraged the body to launch himself at another opponent. Out of the corner of his eye he saw Letty and LaShawn skirmishing with their own antagonists. For an instant he caught a glimpse of Beatrice, her pale features set in a feral grin, and then he was wrestling with another of the cannibals. The pirate slid a long gash in Jones's thigh before the epee slid through the bastard's heart. Jones slapped a patch over his wound, stanching the discharge of blood and air. LaShawn and Letty had bested their opponents. Beatrice was surrounded by three bodies. With a sidelong glance toward Jones, she sliced off an ear from each one and tucked the mementos away for safekeeping. Martians, he thought fondly, loving her ferocity as much as he feared losing her from the consequences of her bravery. The flare of light from an igniting rocket overcame the softer glow of Saturn. While most of the savages had engaged Serendipity's crew, Others had been cutting cargo containers, hydroponics pods, and similar equipment free of the ship. They had bolted one-shot engines and primitive guidance systems to this booty, and were now launching the stuff toward the rings, where others of the tribe were, no doubt, waiting to receive it. This, more than anything that had happened so far, this dismantling of his ship before his very eyes, infuriated Jones. Unable to find his voice, he gestured inarticulately for the others to follow his lead. Thumbing on his jets, he headed for the nearest group of pirates. The scum had detached a dozen suspended animation capsules from their moorings and were about to consign them into the void. They weren't after slaves, Jones knew, since pirates lacked the technology to revive the frozen passengers. But it didn't take much skill to slice a steak. Jones didn't bother to break. He changed attitude until he was approaching feet first and let momentum be his weapon. The jolt of collision slammed through him from his boots to his teeth. His target came apart. This effectively killed Jones's velocity. He lanced out with his epee at another savage, but his adversary parried Jones's thrust with a meter-long cudgel. The riposte caught him just above the faceplate, with sufficient force to send him tumbling head over heels into space. Unconscious. Three minutes went by before he came to, choking, coughing, lungs on fire. His mask was full of blood from a gash on his brow, a flurry of red globules joining and breaking apart and rejoining in an intricate dance, obscuring his vision and choking him. There was too much fluid for his filtration system to handle. Jones knew he would drown in his own blood unless he took quick action. There was, unfortunately, only one thing he could do. He had ten seconds in which to do it. That was how long a man could remain conscious in vacuum. Jones retched out the liquid he had inspired and screwed his eyes shut to prevent ice crystals from forming on them. Exposure to vacuum chilled the body as moisture on the skin evaporated. 
he exhaled, emptying his lungs, and stretched his mouth wide open. This would prevent damage to his lungs when atmosphere rushed from them. Not allowing himself time to think, Jones opened his visor, evacuating it of air. Vacuum bit his cheeks like a thousand needles. His nostrils and throat stung as air hissed from them. The blood fouling his helmet dried into flakes as it was blown out into space. The blood on his forehead congealed and sealed the gash. Five seconds. Six. Eight seconds passed before he got his helmet closed and flooded with atmosphere, and he was able to breathe freely again. When he looked around, Jones learned he was midway between the ship and the sail, heading toward the vast sheet at a velocity of five meters per second in a crazy somersault. Careful bursts of his attitude jets steadied the spin and killed his forward motion. Three additional discharges sent Jones heading back toward serendipity. All communications channels were jammed with a mad static of conflict. It was impossible to tell what was going on and how the battle was progressing. Jones keyed on a priority override, which patched him through to Letty. D'Angelo, thank God you're alive. What's the situation, cousin? We have them contained at the stern. I'll be there. Jones oriented himself and triggered a long burn. Serendipity grew before him. Another burn sent him skimming sternward. A third bled his velocity and brought him to a stop relative to the ship. Not far away, two groups were standing off from one another. Fifteen savages were left of the party that had boarded Serendipity. The remaining primitives were gathered in a defensive, three-dimensional knot, arm to arm and arm to leg and head to toe, weapons outward, all except for three of their number, who floated forward of the main body. Each held a leash connected to a handcuffed crew member. The leashes attached to the tubing linking the prisoners' oxygen tanks to their helmets. A good tug would rip loose the hoses and kill the hostages. What are their demands? Jones asked Letty. She indicated a figure so lanky that it hardly seemed human, wearing a suit ornamented with swastikas and broken crosses done in blood red. That's their hetman. Jasper the... something. A charming conversationalist. He wants passage for himself and his men. All the bodies of their dead. The bodies of our dead, too. He didn't explain himself, but it's not difficult to guess why. Oh, and Jasper expects a ransom. In bullion, if you please. Does he? The anger building in Jones was so profound that it required all the control he had developed during his years of command to reply to Letty in an even tone. Who were the hostages? Kevin Milestone, third engineer. Jasmine Whitlock, first cook. You know her. She makes those wonderful greens. And, oh, D'Angelo, I'm sorry. They have Beatrice, too. He heard the news as if it was from far away, as if it didn't matter. It didn't, not really, that's what he told himself, because he was Serendipity's captain. All his crew were important to him, no single one any more valuable than any other. At least that was how it was supposed to be. And that was how it was, by God, even though the scum had his wife leashed by the throat. Jones burned to within ten meters of the hetman, close enough to see the brilliant blue of Beatrice's eyes and the furious expression in them. He prayed she wouldn't do anything stupid, but feared her courage would overcome her common sense. Martians were like that. I'm D'Angelo Jones, captain of Serendipity, Jones said. Release your prisoners and you may live, I give you my word. You give Jasper nothing, sailor man, the hetman replied with a sneer. 
Jasper takes what Jasper wants. Jasper takes your ship. Jasper takes your women. Jasper takes your dead to feed Jasper's children. Jasper is Hetman. Jasper takes. You take nothing, Hetman. Your people are fled. You are outnumbered. Give me one reason I shouldn't hold back from killing you. Jasper gives you three. The savage replied and tugged at the leash he held. Beatrice clutched at the hose with her bound hands, taking the strain. But even so, the jerk loosened the tube from its coupling, and a thin stream of air began jetting from the joint. Jasper laughed. Maybe Jasper only gives you two reasons. What do you want? That's better, sailor man. You listen to Jasper. You do as Jasper says. Maybe Jasper lets your people live. Before the hetman could continue, however, Beatrice shrugged, blew Jones a kiss, and realized his worst fear. With a jerk of her shoulders, she intentionally ripped the hosing free from her own helmet. Then, disregarding the flooding forth of her life's air, she drew a knife from an ankle sheath, whipped the blade up, and plunged it into her captor. Jasper died. As he did, however, his mace caught Beatrice square in the face. Her mask shattered. Atmosphere rushed from her helmet into space. Hoping that she'd had the presence of mind not to hold her breath, which would have ruptured her lungs beyond repair, Jones thought, Ninety seconds. That was how long Beatrice would survive before vacuum killed her. She'd be unconscious in ten. Jones took out the nearest pirates with two quick thrusts. The rest of his crew burned past and fell on the remaining savages, but Jones didn't spare them a glance. He had to reach Beatrice. She was being carried off into space in a mad spiral by the atmosphere jetting from her tanks. Eighty seconds. Somehow he managed to maintain the countdown in his mind while concentrating on catching her. Seventy-five. He burned full throttle but couldn't get near. The squirming tubing on her back altered her bearing by the second, and it was as if she were purposely evading him. Not until her tanks exhausted themselves was Jones finally able to reach his wife. Sixty seconds. Beatrice was unconscious. Her complexion, even in the dim yellow wash of light afforded by Saturn, was becoming flushed to brilliant red as the capillaries beneath her skin ruptured in the vacuum. Jones sent them hurtling back towards the ship with a continuous burn, keeping up the acceleration until his propellant ran out. He thumbed on the priority override and reached Letty. We're coming in at velocity, he said. I'm out of fuel. Be ready to catch us. Aye, aye, Captain. Serendipity drew nearer with appalling inertia. Each instant cut Jones like a razor. He held Beatrice in his arms, cursing her bravery, her god-rotted courage, the very qualities that made him love her with such agonizing passion. Thirty seconds. We have you in sight, Captain. Slowly, all too slowly, serendipity swelled in bulk, flushing out into the untidy, convoluted structure that it was. A hundred-meter boom was maneuvering a wide-mouthed cargo net into place at their estimated point of impact. Don't get it wrong, Letty. We won't, Captain. I swear it. Then everything happened at once. For a frightening moment, Jones thought they would miss the net, but they entered it cleanly and continued straight into the webbing, which lacerated their suits but had enough elasticity to kill their momentum without killing them. Fifteen seconds. Gas sprayed freely around them from a dozen cuts as the boom brought the net to the hull, where Letty and some other sailors were waiting with a medical tent. Five seconds. Jones wrestled Beatrice inside the transparent envelope and flooded it with a mixture of pure oxygen and helium. 
As the tent expanded with atmosphere, he plunged his arms into the flexible sleeves provided for them and clamped tubing to her femoral artery, drawing her blood through a scrubber chamber, which oxygenated the fluid before pumping it back into her. Then he applied a defibrillator to her chest. Her body jerked to the shock, but failed to continue moving on its own. Zero seconds. Jones charged the device and shocked her again. Still, Beatrice failed to breathe. Nor did a third application of current cause her heart to beat. It was then that Jones knew he'd been too late. He'd lost her. Captain? He refused to remove his eyes from Beatrice's face. What is it? You're losing atmosphere. He shrugged an emergency suit over his torn one and accepted a fresh set of tanks. Still, Beatrice lay motionless. Status. He heard his own voice as if from a distance. Twelve confirmed dead. Twenty-two injured. We're still estimating damage. Jones allowed his gaze to drift from the unmoving form of his wife to the looming titan that was Saturn. Strangely, his rage was not directed at the savages, not at Jasper or the Hetman, but at the vast planet Serendipity was approaching, as if it were itself responsible for all this tragedy. If he could, he would have grabbed the world down from the sky and shattered it in his fist. But he was only human. Jones let out a breath and turned away from Beatrice. He was also captained by God, with responsibilities that outweighed his personal concerns. Well? He roared to the assembly around him. What are we waiting for? Let's get this damn vessel in shape. Letty, detail repair and salvage squads. You there, cousin. I want the bridge pressurized and operational within the hour. LaShawn, where the hell is LaShawn? D'Angelo. His name came to him so softly that at first he thought he was imagining she had spoken. Then she said his name again. Monitor lights that had been dark were now flickering as they reported physiological activity. Beatrice's eyes were open, bloodshot and crimson. Her face was a single ugly bruise, but beautiful to him. The swell of her breast as she breathed was the most wonderful thing he had ever seen. He pressed his cheek against the transparent canopy separating them, unable to speak. Beatrice stretched up an arm and stroked the material with her fingertips, as if it were his skin that she was caressing. In spite of her mask of pain, her smile was as mischievous as ever. "'Did I not tell you to take care?' she whispered, referring to the gash across his forehead, her voice incongruously squeaky because of the helium. "'D'Angelo, my love, why do you never listen to me?' Somehow she found the insouciant strength to wink, his heart breaking, Jones raised his head and regarded the crowd of sailors, a family, that was, despite orders, still gathered around them. "'God curse it! Haven't any of you work to do?' he growled. No one answered. No one moved, either. Then, suddenly, Jones just had to laugh. He couldn't help it, the laughter exploding from him. Soon everyone was laughing with him, in spite of everything— in spite of those they had lost forever. Because at this moment they were alive, and that was indeed very good. For now they would laugh. Get on with you, he muttered, and took his wife, tent and tubing and life support equipment and all, 
into his arms and began heading for an airlock. Now subtending fully two-thirds of the sky, Saturn was immense beyond comprehension, her rings an ocean of so much panorama that it hurt to regard them. Soon they would be on their way past her, assisted onward by the gravity of the gas giant toward the Kuiper Belt. By God, Jones marveled, it was good to be alive and a sailor. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And there you go. Huge, huge thank you to David Hill. David, thank you so much indeed. And Anthony... What a listen, big thank you for this. Big thank you indeed. Yes, so Amy H. Oh, by the way, it's it, I've been waiting for it. This I've waiting for my Christmas card off AIM and it came through. Yes, a little Boba Fett Christmas card from Amy to me. Thank you. I don't send Amy one. Amy, it's there in spirit. You know what I mean? When you send it, just realize mine's there virtually for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So, Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. It is December, and I hope that your month is going well, and that if you celebrate any holidays this month, that they are wonderful. I do love December because I am an autumn and winter kind of gal, and so the weather is just right for me. But if you've heard me talking about holidays before, you probably already know that Halloween is my holiday. And there are basically two times of the year for me. There's Halloween, and then there's waiting for Halloween. (laughs) And the older I get, I'm just not that interested in or enthused about Christmas in the way that a lot of other people are. And Christmas is the holiday that's uh, most predominant here where I am. Don't get me wrong, I like to do things like send cards and connect with people or reconnect with people, and of course, giving and receiving gifts is great, but on the whole, it's just not 
a centerpiece of my year. And I wanted to share with you the fact that I found a way to sort of hack the holidays for myself to sort of get some genre up in Christmas and enjoy it in a different way. So whether you celebrate Christmas or not, I hope that this is useful to you. So I am sitting here with a stack of books at my elbow, and I would like to make some suggestions, some recommendations. And perhaps you too will find some of these great December reading, or for that matter, potential gifts for other readers. So let me start with an anthology that nicely bridges that span between Halloween and Christmas. It's called Remember the Dead at Halloween and Christmas, selected by editor J.A. Maines, also known as Johnny Maines, has an introduction by Mike Ashley, published by Black Shuck Books in 2019. This is a very thick (laughs) collection of over two dozen stories. Very satisfying. And let me read you the official description of this. An all-new anthology of lost Victorian and Edwardian stories set or published during the two seasons where the dead like us to remember them most. Editor Maines has spent four years researching and bringing this book to life. And with a previously unknown Edith Nesbitt tale, Remember the Dead showcases the very best of early supernatural fiction and is a must for any serious lover of the genre. So this has two sections, the first Halloween-related stories, the second Christmas-related stories, and a couple of nice essays thrown in there. And again, some of these works were all but lost. I've talked quite a bit in the past on Starship Sofa about how the Gothic is related to science fiction. I would argue it's sort of a major ingredient of and requirement for the development of science fiction, the Gothic imagination. And it's worth pointing out that by the time you get to Victorian and Edwardian stories, you have works that really are not just related to science fiction, but flat out are science fiction, using science fiction tropes like, for example, time travel, or creating spooky, scary, seemingly supernatural situations that ultimately are explained through scientific means or because of emerging technologies and rational, reasonable, identifiable causes. And I'm also really a huge fan of rescuing works that otherwise might be lost. There are authors here that I'm sure you've heard about before, but there are also authors that not only aren't remembered, but aren't even named. For example, there's a story, The Ghost of Stanton Hall, that was originally published in the New Monthly Magazine and Humorist, Volume 142, in December of 1868, anonymously. Without editors like Johnny Maines, these works aren't easily found and easily read, especially in the case of anonymous publications, because no one's going back to find early works by, well, someone we don't know, right? In the same kind of way that you would be trying to find early works of well-known authors. 
But that has nothing to do with the quality of the stories. And I really appreciate how editors are doing that work for us, making these stories accessible to modern reading audiences. Next, I would like to move to Valancourt Books. I have talked about Valancourt Books before. They are dedicated to bringing back out-of-print and all-but-forgotten works from different genre sources, from the Gothic, from horror, from science fiction, from fantasy, lots of really important work that they are rescuing and bringing back for readers. And I'm sure I'll be talking about Valancourt books again next year, because in their 2022 lineup, they have several science fiction works that are not easy to find or (laughs) afford if you can find them. And so there's some exciting science fiction works coming back through Valancourt Books next year. I will talk about that more later. For now, I would like to talk about their series, The Valancourt Book of Victorian Christmas Ghost Stories. There are five volumes of this now. The first came out in 2016 and was edited by Tara Moore. Then volume two was... 2017, edited by Alan Grove, Volume 3, 2018, edited by Simon Stern, Volumes 4 and 5 came out in 2020 and 2021, and both are edited by Christopher Filippo. These editors have really done some digging to find some gems, so you're not going to be reading the same dozen stories over and over again. Let me read you the official description of the first volume. During the Victorian era, it became traditional for publishers of newspapers and magazines to print ghost stories during the Christmas season for chilling winter reading by the fireside or candlelight. Now, for the first time, 13 of these tales are collected here, including a wide range of stories from a diverse group of authors, some well-known, others anonymous or forgotten. Readers whose only previous experience with Victorian Christmas ghost stories has been Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol will be surprised and delighted at the astonishing variety of ghostly tales in this volume. Many of the stories in these anthologies have not been reprinted since their original publication, so this is really an impressive series. And I should also note that... The fourth volume of the series focuses on America. In fact, let me read you a little bit of that description. The Christmas ghost story tradition is usually associated with Charles Dickens and Victorian England, but apparently unknown (laughs) to historians and scholars, Christmas ghost stories were extremely widespread and popular in 19th century America as well, frequently appearing in newspapers and magazines during the holiday season. From legends of old New Orleans and strange happenings on the plains of Iowa and the Dakota Territory to weird doings in early Puerto Rico and ghostly events in Gold Rush-era San Francisco, the tales collected here reveal a forgotten Christmas ghost story tradition in a bygone America that is both familiar and oddly foreign. So, again, some real contributions here to our understanding of the way genre related to Christmas, not just in the UK, but also in America as well. 
I also want to give a shout out to the series produced by the British Library called Tales of the Weird. Now, British Library's Tales of the Weird includes a lot of volumes that focus on a lot of different topics, from mad scientists to strange, uncanny weather. There's just some really interesting volumes in this series. But for our purposes today, I would like to focus on three. Spirits of the Season, Christmas Hauntings, published in 2018 and edited by Tanya Kirk. Chill Tidings, Dark Tales of the Christmas Season, from 2020, also edited by Tanya Kirk. And Sunless Solstice, Strange Tales from the Longest Nights. This just came out toward the end of 2021 and is edited by Lucy Evans and Tanya Kirk. And here I will give you the description from Chill Tidings. The gifts are unwrapped, the feast has been consumed, and the fire is well fed. But the ghosts are still hungry. The ghosts are at the door. Welcome to a new collection of Christmas nightmares, ushering in a fresh host of ghastly phantoms and otherworldly intruders bent on ruining, or partaking in, the most wonderful time of the year, with classic tales from Algernon Blackwood, Elizabeth Bowen, Charlotte Riddell, and L.P. Hartley, jostling with rare pieces from the sleeping periodicals and literary magazines of the British Library Collections, it's time to open the door and let the real festivities begin. Well, <laughs> that's just delicious. So I've been reading at these volumes and really enjoying these stories, and I wanted to share this reading with you. I'd like to end by suggesting a nonfiction work of academic analysis about this time of year and about the stories we tell. It is called Haunted Seasons, Television Ghost Stories for Christmas and Horror for Halloween by Derek Johnson. It's part of the Palgrave Gothic series, and it was published in 2015. This is a really interesting work that looks at answering two specific questions. Why is there a tradition in the United States of having television programs about Halloween, and in particular, pre-existing television series having Halloween episodes? And why is there an English tradition of ghost stories at Christmas? And in some senses, the answers to these questions are connected. Derek Johnston focuses on, in particular, the BBC ghost story for Christmas tradition, and also Halloween episodes of The Simpsons, the treehouse of horror, if you will. But he also traces some of these impulses back to the kind of tales I was talking about that are in these anthologies of Victorian and Edwardian scary stories. This whole analysis is tied up in notions of genre. Why Certain cultures or societies prefer certain kinds of genre storytelling during certain seasons, during certain times of year. And I should mention here that some of this is science fiction adjacent, and some of it is straight-up science fiction. If you've ever seen, for example, the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes, you know that there is some straight-up science fiction there. 
To give you just one example, it's usually those Halloween Treehouse of Horror episodes in which we see King and Kodos Johnson. Those are the two aliens from the fictional planet Rigel 7. They are green, they look sort of octopus-like. And I should note that some of the Treehouse of Horror episodes directly engage with science fiction texts. The first example that comes to mind is the episode The Day the Earth Looked Stupid, which was from season 18. This aired in 2006. That is the Treehouse of Horror episode 17. And the plot of that episode is that the residents of Springfield listen to Orson Welles's classic radio adaptation of War of the Worlds, and then they riot in fear, and then they discover that the radio broadcast is a work of fiction. And so when aliens actually do come to Springfield, well, everyone thinks it's just another hoax. There's a lot to think about in this book about notions of nostalgia, of sort of cultural heritage, but also how genre works disrupt or interrogate our experiences and, in a sense, help us reset our perspective. Really interesting arguments. And again, I think this linking of Halloween and Christmas and also this analysis of seasonality and of holiday and of what these times of year mean to societies. It's really interesting. Again, it is limited primarily to the UK and the US, but it is much more of a deep dive than large broad claims, but really interesting nonetheless. So, let me recap some of the works that I have suggested to you if you want to put a genre spin on the holidays. I have recommended Haunted Seasons, Television Ghost Stories for Christmas and Horror for Halloween by Derek Johnston from the Palgrave Gothic series, published in 2015. The British Library Tales of the Weird, specifically their holiday offerings, Spirits of the Season, Christmas Hauntings from 2018, Chill Tidings, Dark Tales of the Christmas Season from 2020, and Sunless Solstice, Strange Tales for the Longest Nights from 2021. Also, Valancourt Books, The Valancourt Book of Victorian Christmas Ghost Stories, Volumes 1 through 5, published from 2016 through 2021. And lastly, Remember the Dead at Halloween and Christmas, from Black Shuck Books, 2019. I thought I would leave you with a quick passage, not, in fact, of fiction, but a short news article published in The Valancourt Book of Victorian Christmas Ghost Stories, Volume 4. It says, Horrible sequel to a ghost story. That's the headline. From the Cambridge Independent Press in the UK, December 4th, 1875. And here is a snippet. Quote, As Christmas approaches, it may be well to call attention to the terrible consequences which, according to the Indianapolis Journal, ensued the other day in that city from an hour's amusement in telling ghost stories. A number of young ladies, patients of the Surgical Institute, were assembled in one of the rooms of the establishment at a late hour in the evening and whiled away their time by relating to each other stories of apparitions, hobgoblins, 
ghosts, etc. Either intentionally or by accident, the gas was suddenly turned off. And in the climax of a vivid story, one of the young ladies imprudently threw her shawl over the head of a trembling companion seated next to her. There was a little rustle and a short, stifled scream. When a light was obtained, the melancholy fact was revealed that the poor girl was mad. She has remained so ever since, and very slight hopes are entertained of her recovery. Considerable risk, indeed, attends the reading aloud of the average Christmas ghost story. Strong must be the nerve of anyone who can hear unmoved the first few lines of one of these thrilling narratives, knowing that he's expected to sit through the remainder. If not stricken with idiocy at the beginning of the tale, he generally becomes more or less stupefied before the climax is reached, and his distressing condition has become patent to all. End quote. A warning, indeed. I hope something in here might be of interest to you, and I look forward to joining you again very soon with something completely different. I wish you happy holidays, whatever holidays you celebrate, and here is to a new year, my friends. I'm sending you all the best. I look forward to joining you again soon when we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. And there you go. Amy, thank you so much. Merry Christmas, last Merry Christmas. So that is today's show, 675 Took the Bread. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you next time. So, good night from me. Thank you for listening.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.